We almost always had a dance in October during the great festival. Young girls dressed up in native Hungarian costumes. The adults hung bunches of grapes all around the room. You'd be dancing with your boyfriend, husband, or wife, and they would reach up and grab a bunch of grapes. It was a lot of fun. That was Beth McDonald Wyman reading a few lines from Growing Up in Hastings, an oral history by Kitty Rapoli Brown. You'll hear more in a moment, but first, you're listening to Yesteryear Stories from Home, a series that features firsthand reminiscences of the joys, challenges, and adventures of living in a small village on the Hudson, just up the river from New York City. I'm Melanie Hoops, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our show. In this episode, you'll learn about Kitty Rapoli Brown, born in 1907 of Hungarian immigrants. Her mother left in 1902 and paid for her passage by selling the family cow. She worked as a laundress and a cleaning maid. Her father worked at the National Conduit and Cable Mill for 35 years in 12-hour shifts, five and a half days a week. They heated their home with leftover wood and bought their flour and onions in large sacks. They also went to the dance hall, played in marching bands, found time to visit with friends, and sat around for long storytelling sessions. As Brown recalls, we had no poor people in Hastings then. We were all the same. Of course, Brown's story is but one point in the constellation of immigrants who came to Hastings in the early 20th century. For many years, immigrants formed a significant percentage of the population. Before we hear Brown's tale, Sue Smith, village historian of Hastings on Hudson, New York, provides context. Sue? The story of Kitty Rapoli Brown's family in Hastings that you will hear was typical of Hastings in the early 1900s. By then, Hastings had absorbed immigrant families for years. Thanks to abundant water power flowing from uphill into the ravine, now the Cropsey Foundation and Zinzer parking lot, and access to the Hudson River for transportation, many small mill-type businesses had been established there by the 1850s. The waterfront had a big factory for the Hudson River steam sugar refinery, as well as a docking area for shipping the product of the uphill marble quarry. In 1840, the aqueduct was built through this area, and in 1849, the railroad came through. All these businesses required laborers. Initially, they came from Ireland, suffering from the potato famine, as well as from Scotland and Italy. The next arrivals were Germans for the sugar refinery, whose owners, Ida Hopke and Henry Cattenhorn, were also from Germany. All the workers needed places to live, and they generally settled in boarding houses and apartment buildings close to the waterfront industries, along Southern Warburton Avenue, Washington Avenue, Southside Avenue, and also Uniontown. By the 1880s, the Hastings Pavement Company that made asphalt paving blocks that covered Hastings streets and New York City sidewalks replaced the sugar refinery that had been totally destroyed by fire in 1875. National Conduit and Cable, later named American Brass and then Anaconda, came to the waterfront and produced a new product of insulated cable that was sought by emerging public utilities. And by 1897, Zinzer Chemical was at the south end along the river, making dyes and photography chemicals. More laborers were needed, and they came mainly from Central Europe, from Poland, Hungary, Russia, and Czechoslovakia. More boarding houses and crowded apartment buildings were built along with ethnic churches, clubhouses, taverns, dance halls, and shops, serving the various immigrant populations. Often ethnic groups settled near each other, like the Irish flats and the Polish flats. The men worked in the factories and the women in the shops or the big homes up in the hills of Riverview Manor. By 1910, there were 4,500 residents. And by 1930, there were 7,000, an incredible growth in 40 years that was unique in this area. 
By 1910, 40% were foreign-born, and by 1920, 70%, though many were children. By 1930, there were 30 different languages spoken in the village. Over time, these families moved beyond the downtown areas up to the hills, which had been where wealthy business owners had lived. And many of these families have stayed in Hastings, and many that have moved away still carry a strong attachment to Hastings and their family heritage here. Thanks, Sue. And now Beth McDonald Wyman reading Growing Up in Hastings, an oral history by Kitty Rapoli-Brown. My parents, Stephen Rapoli and Susan Samberger, came to this country from small towns in Hungary. My mother came in 1902 when she was 14 years old. Her family had sold a cow to pay for her passage and steerage. She came alone and knew no one. She went to an agency in New York City and got a job as a live-in maid. She couldn't speak English, but she was a wonderful pastry cook and a beautiful woman with jet black hair. My parents met here in America, married, and came to Hastings in 1908 when I was one year old. My father got a job at the National Conduit and Cable Mill, which later became American Brass and then Anaconda. My father worked in that mill for 35 years. In his early years in the mill, my father worked 12 hours a day, five and a half days a week. At that time, he didn't have vacations. He worked in the boiler room from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., and his brother James worked the other shift. They took care of the large boilers, maintaining the heat and pressure so that there would be steam throughout the entire factory. That's the only job my father ever had. As poor as we were, my father never bought a suit, but always had his suits tailor-made by Emery Roach, a Hungarian tailor on Spring Street. My father would wear his best suit only on Sundays, and his second-best suit back and forth to work each day. At the mill, he would change into work clothes. There was a washroom down at the mill, and every day he would boil the long johns he wore shoveling coal and leave them to dry for the next day. To help out, the women worked as laundresses and cleaning maids in Riverview Manor. My mother did housework for people, and most of the women we knew did that kind of work two or three days a week and got maybe $2 a day. Young girls helped out by washing dishes and minding children after school. I used to wash dishes and set the table for one lady, Mrs. Peck. The next day, I'd do the dishes from the day before, and I'd get the vegetables ready for her family's dinner and set the table again. Many of my friends did that. Around 1917, when I was 10 years old, we lived in a two-family house on a farm where Reynolds Field is today. My mother's brother and his family lived upstairs, and we lived downstairs. We paid $15 a month rent, $7.50 per family. Each family had its own vegetable garden, and we kept a cow. We also kept chickens, but not for selling to anyone, because my father and my uncle both worked in the mill. My father could have bought the place for $3,000 and paid it off in rent, but he was the type that if he didn't have the money, he didn't buy something. When we lived on the farm, and for years afterward, 
a gatehouse with a big gate stood where today you enter Reynolds Field near Five Corners. That gate was the entrance to McFarlane Sanitarium. My father's brother, James Rapoli, was in charge of the gate, and he and his family lived in the gatehouse. The gate led to the road that ran up to the sanitarium, which was located where the pool is today. Wealthy people were put there. They were probably mentally disturbed, or maybe they were alcoholics. We never knew. There was no way to get there except through the gate, so no one could go up or down when the gate was closed. My son Robert still has the big brass key to that gate. In 1920, we moved from the farm down Main Street to one of the three Dorland cottages that stood next to each other, where Citibank and the parking lot are today. Our family occupied four rooms on the east side of the middle cottage, and the James Sebo family lived in the other half. A toilet was attached to the outside of the cottage, and both families had to go outside to get to it. We took turns cleaning the toilet. Since Mrs. Sebo had only sons, she scrubbed it one week, and I cleaned it the next. All these people in the Dorland cottages were Hungarian or Romanian. An Italian family, the Montalbanos, owned a vegetable store on Warburton Avenue. Next to them were the Snyders. They were considered wealthy Hungarians. They had a piano. Across the street, several Hungarian families lived, including the Antkus, Every week, Mrs. Antku read serial stories from the Hungarian newspaper called the Naseva, or in English, the People's Voice, to the other mothers, and we children would all sit and listen. Those people worked hard all day long, but they always found time to visit with friends and neighbors. In those days, you never told someone, if you need me, let me know. You just did it for them. We had no poor people in Hastings then. We were all the same. When I was very young, each nationality had its own section of town. The Irish started at the top of Washington and came down to the corner of Warburton and then went south on Warburton. The four curved front double apartment buildings on the west side of Lower Warburton Avenue are still referred to as the Irish Flats because, for years, only Irish lived there. Lower Washington Avenue, Ridge Street, and Railroad Avenue was where all the Polish, Slavic, and Russian people lived. There weren't many Italians in the village then, and they mostly lived on Main Street, west of the Riolo's house, which is where their real estate office is today. In those days, everyone went to church. We went to Holy Trinity in Yonkers because it had a priest who spoke Hungarian. You had to go every Sunday, that was a must, and you got dressed up. My father and other Hungarian men formed a band. They wore uniforms and marched in parades and such. My father played the French horn. I can remember polishing it for him. When I was young, we spoke only Hungarian at home. As time went by, my mother and father learned English, and then it was more English than Hungarian. My mother learned to read English by reading the daily news. But after I was married, whenever I went to visit my mother, I always spoke Hungarian with her. Miss Rich was my kindergarten teacher, 
I also remember Miss Schmidt and Miss McClave, my third grade teacher. I didn't go to high school. My father didn't believe in girls being educated. He thought that all girls needed to know was how to cook and sew. Hungarian people are great for dancing, and we used to have big dances at Sikorsky Hall down on Lower Washington Avenue. We almost always had a dance in October during the Great Festival. Young girls dressed up in native Hungarian costumes. The adults hung bunches of grapes all around the room. You'd be dancing with your boyfriend, husband, or wife, and they would reach up and grab a bunch of grapes. It was a lot of fun. No one had babysitters then, so we children were taken to all these affairs. When we got tired, we fell asleep on the benches that lined the walls. We also had dances at Michelin's Inn on Farragut Avenue and picnics in Draper Park. We bought our coal from Bevers, but to save money, my father would chop wood, which we burned in the stove during the day. He didn't cut down trees. He used leftover wood from packing crates and spools from anaconda. He and the other men at the mill would ask the bosses for the wood, bring it home, and chop it up. Every fall, my mother would buy a bag of onions and a bag of flour. She'd create a lot of noodle dishes. We only had meat once a week on the weekend. I really get a kick out of the nutritious people today who eat a lot of cabbage, beans, etc. That's what we lived on. There was enough food, but there wasn't any junk food. My father never sat down to eat at the table unless he was saying his prayers. We used to get round loaves of bread from the bakery, and before he cut the loaf of bread, he always made the sign of the cross on it with his knife. My mother and father had soup every day. Potato soup, string bean soup in the summer, or fresh tomato soup. My mother made mashed potatoes, no butter or milk, just mashed potatoes. She would saute a big pan of onions and pork fat, spread the potatoes onto a big plate, and pour the onions into the wells she'd made. That's what we ate, along with soup and a piece of rye bread. When I was 16 or 17, I went to work in the mill where my father and uncles worked. I worked on machines called winders. To my knowledge, at that time, only women worked on the winders, and I remember we had to wear pants that were shaped like balloons. Each girl or woman had to take care of 25 machines. Each machine was a spool with a wire coming up out of it, and you had to constantly replace the spools. I don't remember how much money I made. We were paid by the amount of work we put out, piecework. I think we worked about 10 hours a day, five and a half days a week. I didn't work there very long, perhaps a year or so. It was very hard work, and I hated it. I went into sewing instead and worked as a machine operative in uniform and shirt factories in Yonkers. In the early 1950s, I owned a yarn store on Warburton Avenue, where the center restaurant is now. It was a little store called The Ball of Yarn. I furnished it with a maple living room set and hung curtains on the windows. I've always loved to do things with my hands. I enjoy knitting. I still do it a lot. For me, to sit is a waste of time, and there's not much time left. 
I utilize every minute I can because time is precious. I don't care how young you are or how old you are. It's still precious. You just listened to Growing Up in Hastings, an oral history by Kitty Rapoli-Brown, read by Beth McDonald-Wyman. Yesteryear Stories from Home is produced by Tim Donahue, Eduardo Ballerini, and me, Melanie Hoops. Sound design by Josh Govier and featuring archives from the Hastings Historical Society. From all of us to all of you, thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more stories from the place that you call home. <laughs>